happy Saturday. It's May 13th, 2023, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker in London. And I'm Michael Haney in New York City. And we are two of your airmail editors who have absolutely nothing to do this weekend and are very happy about it. Yeah. Have you recovered from your block party for the coronation, Ashley? (laughs) Barely. I mean, block party, like there were four events happening in my neighborhood. It's like there was a conga line. The rain was not going to stop anyone, but it was really a lot of fun in London, a very special time to be here. And now happily, we are moving on. We are moving on and we've got a great show today to help you move on. We've got Bill Cohen, our man on Wall Street, who's going to reveal why the head of Goldman Sachs has cozied up to a man who builds super exclusive homes for Tom Brady, George Clooney, and other big names. Then on the subject of property and places to hide out and unwind, our man in France, Alexander Lebrano, takes us to a private island in the French Riviera that's being transformed from a family retreat to a luxury hotel. And finally, Bruce Handy will join us to discuss the legacy of Bruce McCall, the illustrator and airmail contributor who led a truly great life. Ashley, where are you feeling like starting today? Well, as much as I'd like to take a virtual trip to the Riviera, I think we should probably start with Scandal on Wall Street with Bill Cohan here. Michael, have you ever been to a Discovery Land property? I have not because I don't think I'm wealthy enough or cool enough or I don't move in the right circles of all these people that sort of buy into these places, right? Well, never say never, Michael, but there's been an awful lot of mystery around Mike Meldman, who has built 27 private resorts all over the world through his company, Discovery Land Company. Here, Bill Cohen is going to take us inside Baker's Bay in the Bahamas, Silo Ridge in the Hudson Valley and even out to the Hamptons. Bill's a writer at large for Airmail and the author of best-selling books like The Last Tycoon's House of Cards and The Price of Silence. His latest is Power Failure. Welcome, Bill Cohan. It's great to be here again. Thank you. All right. So Discovery Land has all these fancy properties all over the world. In short, what is the proposition of Discovery Land Company? Oh, I think it is uh, akin to what Fitzgerald said, the consoling proximity of millionaires, but that should be updated to the consoling proximity of billionaires. These are exclusive, gated communities uh, where the homes are very expensive, not Palm Beach expensive, but very expensive. And there's all sorts of crazy nice amenities that go with it. World-class golf courses where you can play as many holes as you want. You can wear what you want. There's all sorts of groovy, high-calorie snacks along the way. You can take tequila shots. And there's all sorts of other amenities that uh, cater to the billionaires and the extremely wealthy. And I think it's just a place where they can sort of get away and try to be themselves. But there's occasionally some indices of trouble in paradise. So let's get to it, Bill. Mike Meldman, the man behind this outfit called Discovery Land Company, has had quite the enabler in David Solomon, the CEO of Goldman Sachs. Solomon has invested quite a bit of his own money. And as you note, that raises questions about Solomon's commitment to separating business from pleasure. How did these two guys meet and what do they see in each other? They were introduced something like 20 years ago now, probably soon after. David had gotten to Goldman Sachs as a partner after leaving Bear Stearns, uh, having been recruited to Goldman. And he was vacationing in Hawaii. A mutual friend of David's and Mike said, oh, there's this guy, Mike Meldman, you might want to meet. He's developing one of his earliest developments 
uh, in Hawaii, and you may want to take a look at it. It's so beautiful. And so they did. They went down to the development on the big island, and I think David was uh, favorably impressed. Decided not to buy a home because Hawaii is very, very far from New York and so not very convenient. But I gather that's how they first met, according to David. So, Bill, as you know, you've got a great quote in your story from someone who says, as one hedge funder told you, Mike Melman has created an egalitarian society for rich people. If you can write the check, you're not an you're in. And those people have included the Kardashians, Tim Cook, Bill Gates, Michael Jordan, lots of people. But as you note uh, as well, Melman and his properties also have some problems, right? Which it's not all as family friendly and soothing an environment as one would think it would be from the outside, right? Yeah. And just a point of clarification, it was David Solomon who invested personally in the equity that was raised in 2021. Goldman has financed separately one of the developments in Cabo, San Lucas, and has explored providing raising equity at the holding company level that David invested in personally, but they ended up not doing that. And also, by the way, Mike was one of the men with Randy Gerber and George Clooney behind Casamigos Tequila, which sold for a billion dollars to Diageo. So uh, that was a nice little side project that they had together. And both Gerber and George Clooney at one point, and I think Gerber still has homes in uh, Discovery Land developments. But there have been several personnel issues, I guess, that are not atypical, but they've been kept private because Beldman's company is still a private company involving a black employee who I think was treated terribly, ended up filing a wrongful dismissal suit that was settled. Another employee who did a lot of the design work at the Meldman Developments later became the chief operating officer of Meldman Developments and then filed a lawsuit against Mike and the company claiming that she had been stiffed on more than $4 million that he owed her. That too has been settled. Another settlement came with regard to one of Mike's equity partners in the original holding company claims of who was the COO before the woman who sued him for Becky Buchan, who sued him for not paying her the $4 million that she claimed to owe him. A guy named Steve Adelson had created, quote, a culture of fear and manages by dictatorship. And they settled with him too. They signed a separation agreement with him, giving him quote, a soft landing and a new beginning, which turned out to be, even though this guy had done all these things that other employees did not like, and they found it very distasteful, he got to keep the majority of his equity interests in Discovery and has a very lucrative consulting agreement. And somebody even told me he may be back there. So it's not as pristine and beautiful and family-friendly as Mike would have everybody believe in his marketing materials. So does all this make you wonder if David Salmon did due diligence on his investment or is he just, why would he invest in this company with Melman and what's he getting out of it? Well, he obviously owns two homes, one in Baker's Bay in the Bahamas that he bought and one in Silo Ridge, which is about uh, 100 miles north of New York City in the Hudson Valley. And They have been friends, as I said, for 20 plus years. They golf together. They go to dinner together. They hang out. 
I don't know whether that friendship meant he didn't do the kind of due diligence you might want to do if you're making a multi-million dollar investment. Maybe he doesn't consider it a material to him, the money, and just sort of said, okay, this is, I like these things. I like what he's doing. This is a good financial opportunity for me. But these lawsuits that I've uncovered, obviously filed publicly, are sort of troubling about his behavior. And if I were CEO of Goldman Sachs, not sure I would have made that investment. But of course, I'm not CEO of Goldman Sachs, and he's free to do what he wants as long as it's not illegal, but it's not a great look. All right, Bill, I have a vulgar question for you about these properties. Have you been to any of these Discovery Land developments? That is a vulgar question. Yes, I've been to Silo Ridge, which is in the Hudson Valley. I got a tour of it and talked to the guy who was running the facility. And can you explain the appeal of these places? Well, I don't understand the location of this particular development. It's sort of hard against hillside that the sun disappears relatively early in the day. And but the homes are beautiful. The facilities are nice. There's a big quarry where you can go swimming in the summer and it becomes like an ice rink in the winter. And on the other side, I mean, the physical beauty of the, uh, especially as you're looking east, is nice where they're going to have some sort of course facility. I don't get it. It's completely out of character for the surroundings, but it's convenient to New York City. They can go there, as David Solomon said, and hang out, have their privacy, play golf whenever they want. They don't have to make an appointment like they do when they go to those fancy clubs in the Hamptons. So it's a thing, I guess. Uh, Wouldn't be for me, actually, but I couldn't afford it either. So, But Bill, you know, what strikes me about this that, I mean, I get the appeal of living among other people who are just as rich as you, But the fact that the interiors and the architecture and all of that is so same, same, like to me, it's not sort of just like living in a very high end version of a condominium development in Hawaii. Like I thought rich people wanted to be unique and to show off their taste and their design and their exquisite knowledge of furniture. There's something about this that feels totally off to me that it's like the kind of place an aspiring super rich person wants to live. You know what I mean? Again, it wouldn't be for me if I were a super rich person, but I think There's something about the security that is offered to these people. As David Solomon told me about Tom Brady and Giselle Bunchen when they had a place in Silo Ridge before they moved to Tampa Bay and got divorced, that gives them sort of the anonymity and the freedom that they can often get to sort of play golf without people coming up to them and so they can hang out with other billionaires and multimillionaires and nobody's asking them a lot of questions that aren't paparazzi. So I don't understand it. It wouldn't be for me, but they're popular and he's got a lot of very wealthy, successful people who are part of all of this. Well, something tells me, Bill, this is not the last we're going to be hearing from you about this topic. Or uh, I'm sure it's not the last we're going to be hearing from Mike Feldman and others about this topic either. He's very protective of what he's built and rightly probably proud of it. But he's certainly someone to watch who's been under the radar screen for a long time and who's basically portrayed what he's done as an oasis in a world gone mad. And of course, there's some madness at Discovery Land, too. Well, Bill, thank you so much for this great story, for joining us. And I look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks, Bill. Great to see you. Thanks for making time today. Thank you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Well, you and I, maybe it's a good thing we haven't bought into Discovery Land Trust, a little property up there in one of those places.
We're happy where we are, Michael, with our little apartments in Greenwich Village. All good. A little part. The only place I think I might want to go is where Alec Lebrano is going to take us next, right? Oh, absolutely. Well, Alec has probably been there. Like, how do you get the descendants of pasties king Paul Ricard to agree on how to spend their family inheritance? Well, you develop a private island. And Alec Lebrano, who's a writer at large for Airmail, is here to explain exactly what's happening to this island on the French Riviera and whether or not we're going to be able to vacation there anytime soon. Welcome, Alec. Thank you very much. So tell us about this magical little island on the French Riviera. The Ile de Bendor is indeed actually a magical little island. These two little islands are up the coast of Bandol in the Var on the French Mediterranean coast. And they were bought by the Ricard family in the 1950s. Ricard is really well known in France as the original maker of pastis, the cloudy aniseed flavored drink, which was once hugely popular. Today it's merged with Pernod. So Ricard Pernod is one of the biggest wine and spirit companies in the world and one of the most profitable. But the Ricards bought these little islands to, originally they bought the island of Ile de Vendor to build a summer house. But then after the French government passed a law banning direct advertising for alcoholic spirits in 1951, the very shrewd and wily Mr. Ricard decided to open up the Ile de Vendor and turn it into a family destination with Ricard branding. So there was a zoo, there were a museum of advertising and publicity objects emblazoned with the Ricard logo. It became Ricard land is really what it was. And the whole idea, I don't know if this would float today, but the whole idea at the time was to enchant the adults and sow the seeds of desire for pastis in people who were at that time probably still drinking Coca-Cola. So it was basically a big publicity. So they built a hotel, though, on the island, too, the, the Hotel de Los, which at that time in the 60s, when it opened, pulled kind of a jet-city crowd. Mr. Ricard, Monsieur Ricard, liked artists. He fancied himself to be a painter. So Josephine Baker and Salvador Dali and all sorts of other people traipsed through there. The hotel, which I'd been to, had become sort of frumpy, but fabulously frumpy and dumpy and that rare thing on the seaside in France, it was affordable. I mean, you could, as I pointed out in my story, before it closed down, you could get a room there high season for about 250 euros, which is about $275, which is really cheap in the month of August in the south of France. But now, as you know, it's being pitched for a massive transformation. Okay, so first of all, the Ricard family has a very enterprising young man sort of at the center of this who's the one orchestrating this transformation into a luxury hotel for the masses. Tell us about him and his partners, importantly. Well, he's fantastic. His name is De Geoffroy. It's not Ricard. He's the great-grandson of the original Monsieur Ricard. And he has had this idea of, I mean, the island is a bit dated. It's needed a lot of work. The salt waters, he pretty much destroyed his infrastructure. So he decided that the island needed a really a total refurbishment. And they put up a tender looking for a hotel partner. And they chose the Zanyes. Zanyes is not very well known in the U.S., but the Zanyes have hotels in Mijev, Cambodia, Vietnam, and Namibia. And 
They chose Zanye because they wanted a, a small, intimate boutique-style hotel that was environmentally sustainable. They did not want cookie-cutter international luxury, is the way that they explained it. They want something that was more distinctive and indigenous. But so this monumental project is just about to start. First thing we have to do is put a gigantic barge to bring over everything that they need to the island to start rebuilding the hotels and the island itself. But here will be a project between the Paul Ricard Enterprises and the Zanye Hotel Group, which is based in, in Mijev in the French Alps. Have you stayed, Alec, at any of these Zanye hotels? I have done. The one in Mijev is absolutely charming. It was originally Marc, the chef, Marc Verla's chalet. Then he turned it into a restaurant and... Mark Ferrat is famous for his black felt hat and for his somewhat shaky business skills, ended up selling it to the Zanyes who turned it into a 12, I think it's 12 or 15 bedroom chalet. And it's a great hotel because to really get Mijev, you need to be a guest in a private chalet or in a small hotel that apes the rhythms of chalet life in Mijev. And that's what the Zanyes have on offer. Wonderful. Well, Alec, I, I think you and I should go together in 2025 when this place opens. I wouldn't. I think we should book now. <laughs> it's going to be very popular. I think we should also, and, Mike, and Michael will have to join us, but we'll have to start saving up because the rooms there are going to be, it was tossed out in excess of a thousand euros a night, which has unfortunately become kind of par for the course in luxury hotels in big European and French cities. That's a lot on the on the Riviera. I mean, but Alex, you're also great. At, I mean, so not opening until 2025, but we can buy our plane tickets in advance, maybe save a little money. But you're always great at knowing the little hideaways, the little places. Don't go here, go there. Is there any place in the area somewhere along the Riviera that one can still find a little steel that has a hotel that was like this before it's going to get picked up and renovated? The, there are a couple places on that coast that are pretty fantastic. One of my favorite places along that coastline that's not far from the Ile de Bendo is Saint-Marie-sur-Mer, which is just your perfect picture book French fishing port and one-size-fits-all seaside destination, which caters to every budget. And so if you don't like the rarefied atmosphere of a place that's 100%, 1%, I think Sanary Surmer is a place you'd like a lot. There's some delightful hotels there that, again, in high season would be about 150, 100 to 150 euros a night. Further along the coast, there's a dumpy little place not far from me called Le Gros du Roi, which Hemingway liked too when Hemingway was drinking himself to death at the Hotel Empire de Nice. He was sent down to the seaside to dry out for a couple of days, and he fell in love with this seaside town, which is France's biggest Mediterranean fishing port. So great seafood. And again, it's a place where there are a whole lot of sort of winsome, squeaky clean, two- and three-star hotels, which are affordable in high season, where there's no body reluctance on the beach because they're old people, young people, fat people, kids, everything. And for me, personally, I like that sort of peaceful kingdom type seaside situation. If everybody's too beautiful, I'll only go swimming in the middle of the night so that people can't see my portly self scuttling along the shoreline. 
I love this idea, Alec. Thank you so much for all of your fabulous insights, not only to the place where the 100% of the one percenters go, but where the rest of us can enjoy it as well. Can't wait to see you in France very soon. Me too. Alec, always a pleasure. Bye. Bon, bon weekend. weekend. Yeah, I'd like to chairs on the beach as soon as that's available, please. Yeah, me too. Sign me up. Well, actually, someone who might have designed the perfect whimsical boat to transport guests from the Riviera to the island was the satirical artist and writer Bruce McCall. McCall, who died last week, was a contributor here at Airmail, as well as to Vanity Fair, National Lampoon, Spy Magazine, and The New Yorker. Now, Bruce Handy is here to share his memories of McCall. Bruce Handy was an editor and writer at Vanity Fair, as well as Spy, and he is the author of Wild Things, The Joy of Reading Children's Literature as an Adult. Welcome, Bruce Handy. Thank you. So glad to be here. Bruce, the illustrator Bruce McCall died this week at age 87. What made him so special? Well, I mean, partly that he was more than just an illustrator. He was also a wonderful writer and he created almost all his own material. And he just had, I mean, I think, you know, genius is a word that gets thrown around probably a little too much, but I think Bruce definitely was a genius. I mean, he had such a unique and specific worldview. He loved kind of looking back into the past. He was fascinated by like arcane transportation, airships and crazy giant thin cars from the 50s and stuff like that. And he was also obsessed with the old world aristocracy, like crazy German hunting parties and inbred British aristocrats and stuff like that. And he invested that world. It was kind of like if you take that subject material and then you kind of imagine a surrealist, kind of a deadpan surrealist Magritte, I think is probably like the closest example to Bruce. So he's taking this strange older world that's sometimes forgotten or sometimes looked at with too much nostalgia. And he's kind of distorting it to his own ends and warping it. He's got people, first-class air passengers, dining on the wings of airplanes. He's got hunting parties shooting zeppelins out of the sky. He's got cars that are literally like three lanes wide. I mean, it's just, he's a surrealist, but he's also commenting on that kind of era of culture, both here and in, in Europe, kind of the excesses, the arrogance, the waste, um, and it's all funny. He's a satirist. So he's kind of, I guess maybe you could say he's sort of a surrealist as satirist. So I think Bruce was so singular. I mean, I see his influence almost more when I see things out in the world and you see something that's kind of some mode of transportation or sort of a building that's just kind of too large or too retro or something like that. And you almost feel like, ah, that's Bruce McCall. I feel like McCall has almost become an adjective the way if you're talking about literature, like Hemingway-esque or something like that, or, you know, Magritte-like. No, even in a way, I think there's McCall. And then I'm thinking too, like another illustrator that comes to mind is Rube Goldberg. Just he created this entire world and way of seeing the world that becomes an adjective now. Well, yeah, exactly. You say Goldbergian. Yeah, you know exactly what you're talking about. I think the other thing, I mean, I think that one thing that I talked about a little in my tribute to him, I think what's so great about Bruce is that he was really a master of perspective and a master of composition. I mean, he used those illustrator tools to tell jokes. I mean, you look at his things and they're just so beautifully composed. I mean, I know Norman Rockwell was a big influence on him. And you don't look at Bruce's work and say that's Rockwellian. I mean, there's another example of an adjective that we know, but in terms of the way Rockwell knew how to tell a story just in a single image, that's exactly what Bruce did. And Rockwell knows how to guide your eye through his paintings to get to exactly what he wants you to see when you want to see it. And that's what Bruce does too. I mean, I compare him sometimes to, he's kind of like a deadpan comic in the sense that he has just kind of the visual equivalent of perfect timing. I don't know for a fact, I don't know if Bruce was a Buster Keaton fan, and I'm sure he is because any, every right-thinking person is, but I think there's a lot of Buster Keaton 
and Bruce, that was probably an influence on him besides Rockwell. And the great New Yorker cartoonist too. Peter Arno is another example, I think, of somebody who just has such a great compositional sense in a comic sense that he makes. Sometimes you don't even really need to see the captions on his cartoons. They're just so kind of inherently funny the way like that sort of little man character gets lost in a bevy of showgirls or something like that. You don't even need what the caption is. It's just the, the humor is the scale and everything. Yeah, Bruce is just a master of that. And I think sadly, it's a lost art. I think a lot of humorous illustration now and cartooning, it seems like so much stuff now so relies on the caption, which is great. I mean, a lot of stuff is really funny, but I think that art of really creating a truly witty and really composed illustration or cartoon or whatever is we're losing that. We see it in the world of children's books where I've been trying to plot my trade now. And Bruce did illustrate a couple of wonderful children's books too. One that he wrote and illustrated one and he illustrated another one that Adam Gopnik wrote and they're both terrific and worth seeking out. Get Zany Afternoons first, then get All Meat Looks Like South America. Those are two collections of Bruce's work from the National Lampoon from Vanity Fair, which is where I first actually met Bruce and worked with Bruce and was privileged enough to edit him and stuff from the New Yorker. Those are the two great collections of his work. Then you want to check out his memoirs. How did I get here? So that's your Bruce McCall reading list I just gave you. Bruce, we know so much about him and his work, but what was he like as a person? He was great. He was he was wonderful. He had this kind of gruff, even sometimes cranky exterior, but like a lot of people with that sort of scaffolding, he was actually like a total sweetheart underneath. And a true intellectual in the sense that he had a very restless curiosity. He read everything. I mean, he was one of the, I know a lot of novelists and journalists and historians, and Bruce was still, like, even in that crowd, one of the best read people I've ever met. Like, you talk about any contemporary novel, and he was totally on top of it. And he was curious. He'd always ask you, so what have you been reading? What have you heard? What's the gossip? What do you learn? What was interesting in the paper? He liked stimulation. Again, like I said, he had this kind of restless intelligence, which obviously you see in a refined way in his work. But yeah, he was just great to talk to. He was a great host. He threw great dinner parties. He loved to eat lunch at Cafe Luxembourg, where we used to go back in the day when I still had an expense account. Yeah, and he would know everybody. He knew all the people there. He'd have some pal over at the other table who would come by, maybe be Ron Chernow. Or... I remember once we had lunch and he brought Kim Cattrall as sort of a surprise third, who was totally a charming, lovely woman to talk to. So yeah, that was Bruce. He was just he knew everybody, you know, it seemed like he knew every great nonfiction writer. He knew like tons of people in showbiz. He did a brief stint at Saturday Night Live, so he knew people from that world. He knew Broadway people. Yeah, he was almost like kind of an old-fashioned, we call him a man about town, but he certainly had a little bit of that kind of cafe society breadth of friendship in him and also depth of friendship because he was a great friend. And there's a whole community of people who love Bruce and miss him dearly. He was fun. He was a great guy to hang out with. It's a beautiful tribute to Bruce McCall, Bruce. So thank you. And yeah, he's one of those people who makes New York, New York. Well, it's hard. Yeah, it's hard sometimes to look at New York now and not see. Maybe that's where his influence is. When you look at New York and you look at those vistas and you have to expect to see kind of a Zeppelin flying in the distance or something like that, or some crazy auto gyro ship or some nutty parking lot. Yeah. Or you look at those crazy stiletto buildings on the Central Park South. There's like, they're impossible to be there. Like it's Bruce McCall just sort of like creating stage set for us. But exactly. Yeah. That's a perfect example. Those are total like, yeah, crazy, unlikely, improbable Bruce McCall buildings. Exactly. Yeah. Are these houses for billionaires or actually mean docking stations for, for Zeppelins? We don't know, but both. they're both, but Bruce, it's a beautiful tribute, and thank you for sharing with us and for being here today. Again, my pleasure. Well, that was a little magical moment of media history. Yeah, what a talent Bruce McCall was. 
Well, Michael, what are your plans for the weekend? Do you have anything exciting going on on your calendar? I've got a few things. There's a couple art openings in New York. I'm going to see a Man Ray exhibit uptown. But if you're looking for something that everyone can do, I've got one recommendation I can share. Would you like to hear it? Nah, not really. I'm all good. (laughs) Kidding, of course. (laughs) She's coming in feisty today. Okay, I'll share it with you. Have you seen this show, The Silo? In short, no. Every time you ask me that question, Michael, the answer is always the same. No, I haven't seen it because I have no life. Tell us. Disagree. Okay. The silo is, look, if the dystopian world of HBO's The Last of Us was not enough for you, then I suggest you check out The Silo. It's a new limited series from Apple TV, and it's a sci-fi thriller that kind of got me hooked after one episode. It's set in the near future, and it tells the story of a group of humans who live inside a massive underground bunker. Now, I know, okay, stay with me here. They're also forbidden from going outside, and it might sound like, oh, really, what? But I got to tell you, it, it's got these echoes of Blade Runner and even this 1970s film I always love with Bruce Dern called Silent Running. And it creates this entire world that's also this super intricate plot where the mystery hooks you. And I'm in. I don't know where it's going to go, but it stars Rebecca Ferguson, Tim Robbins, the rapper Common, as well as Rashida Jones. So it's unlike a lot of shows I've seen. So if you're not a quote-unquote sci-fi person, I'd say check it out. It's called The Silo, and you can see it on Apple TV. And you, my dear, what do you got going this weekend? into it. Michael, I'm going to France this weekend because as you know, I'm a dilettante. Oh, wah, wah. I know. Um, so I'm not going to be watching much television. But- All right. Well, actually, Michael, you know what I am going to do? I'm going to go see Hana Yanagihara's A Little Life on the stage here in London, even though I'm dreading it because frankly, I didn't like the book that much, not because it wasn't well done, but because I found it so depressing. And yet theater club calls. So you got to do what theater club wants to do. Have you seen it? It wasn't in New York, right? No, it it's opened only in London. In London, I believe. Um, yeah. Well, everyone in London is talking about it, so I have to tell you. I feel like I have to go see it, even though I know it's going to cause me misery in two weeks of sleeplessness, just like the book. Uh, what you do in the name of morning meeting <laughs> shall suffer for theater. All right. Well, wishing you all a marvelous weekend, full of sunshine, happy days, and zero crowns. Michael, will you please read us out? Absolutely. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music, but most of all, Thank you again for joining us.